when you're deep in Hello, Internet. You are now experiencing Technical Difficulties, an RPG actual play podcast. Each week we play a variety of games, including Call of Cthulhu, Eclipse Phase, and the upcoming Red Markets from Heaven on Games. New episodes are posted every Wednesday, so come join us at www.technicaldifficultiespod.com. Join us on Facebook, join us on Twitter, and wherever fine podcasts are sold. And the cleric's down and dying, and you've taken all the potions you had left. And you feel like you are doomed, because that demon you set loose is coming after you, and you can smell its breath. Don't ever give up. Hello, welcome to the Real Playing Exchange. This is your host, Adam, and joining me today are my co-hosts... Noah and Chris. And special guest... Greg Stolzey. And today we're going to talk about everything wonderful with Greg Stolzey and Unknown Armies. So first off, looks like the well, we've already had a digital release of books one through three. And uh, my question here, is there kind of a, a pending release date or nothing too concrete to start mentioning in the future for the publication of that? Oh, the solid books? Yeah. What they told me, the, the solid books were supposed to be uh, arriving in February, which is, is why I had the follow-up novel Kickstarter in February, because I figured everyone would be getting their solid books and would be really stoked. But it turns out it will be two months late due to Chinese New Year. So huh. look for it in April. But I'm still really, really, really looking forward to the print version. It's weird having done so much of the writing and the editing that what I find myself most excited about is the slipcase GM screen. Yeah, that's a that's a great idea. Yeah, I'm like, this is probably what I'll be remembered for, you know, 10 (laughs) 10 years after my death. It'll be like, oh, yeah, Stolzy. Didn't he do something with gaming? He was the slipcase GM screen guy. Whoa. (laughs) Just God. deep breaths all around. Well, they're definitely. He did some writing too. But it, those that that whole GM screen thing—that was the kicker. <laughs> well, also, it's definitely something to look forward to. I know on the digital format, they're absolutely just stunning. Uh, to be honest with you, I've I haven't seen a book laid out quite like that, at least with the artwork and all that. And I've, I kind of like the mix of what the book's going for. Well, we we worked really hard at it, and it was you know it was kind of a confluence of factors. I think games have just been getting better and better looking. D and D when it re released, you know, set this high bar of okay, yeah, no, full color throughout. The rest of you can do that, right? Uh, and then Shadows of Esterin comes along and is like, oui, we can do that. <laughs> and that was supposed to be a French accent. Uh, <laughs> my apologies to the entire nation of France. But, you know, Shadows of Estrin looked so great. Dennis Detwiller was waving that in our faces and says, saying Delta Green has to look this good. This is the bar that you have to reach now. And so that was in my mind when, you know, I was talking things up with Atlas Games. And, you know, John Nephew was like, yeah, I see no reason that Atlas should not be able to put out a book that looks as good as anything Watsy does. And somewhere in there, I honestly can't remember at what point I said, well, maybe we should do it with photographs instead of, you know, instead of drawings. Part of it was that I thought that you could probably stretch your art budget that way. And I know that Nephew is always in favor of not going broke on things, but I thought it would give it a different look and, and set it apart. And I'd seen a bunch of, are you familiar with the, the website Post Secret? Yes. So I'd been looking at that and how interesting and compelling these secrets on postcards with handmade art were. And I'm like, that, 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 I want that. So I wound up making a bunch of, you know, rumors on modified photographs myself and they, they went into book three. So. That, that'll that be fun to see. But because I worked on that, because I did some of the art myself, and because I've been over the text so many times, I mean, it's great and I love it and I'm pleased with it. But it's not going to be, you know, thrilling to see it the eighth time. Right. That's entirely reasonable. It'll be thrilling to have it, you know, in this physical giant object I can make my shelf sag with. <laughs> 
Awesome. Definitely looking forward to when the uh, the actual books arrive and getting the hands on uh, the PDFs a little bit early is, is, is always nice. Yeah. Well, and how I, I haven't looked at the PDFs because, you know, I, I've read everything and, and I'm trying to hold off till I get the books. But I do know that Thomas Deeney, the, the guy who is, you know, the, the layout master for all this, when he, you know, before he did even the first bit of layout, he was very much concentrating on, I want this layout to be functional for reading on a pad and reading on a Kindle. And I don't want it to just be another crappy PDF that takes 10 minutes to load and doesn't, and isn't interlinked. And, you know, you can't rescale it. He wanted it very much to have, to take advantage of every advantage that the e-format offered. And I'm wondering how well that, uh, that worked out. Cause you know, I, I don't run games off PDFs cause I'm too old. <laughs> um, well, I'm actually looking at the, the PDF for book one right now, since you mentioned it. And I mean, the way that it's laid out, it has along the side of, of each page, it has like each like major section that you can just click on. So you can go from your, your introduction to the character section, to the conflict section, straight on down like real easy by just clicking along the side of the page and everything and it's Neat. it's all laid out very clearly in a in a pdf format so it definitely makes it handy there well that, and i can that's... say as somebody who's been running the campaign it's been great yeah I'll tell thomas he'll be happy <laughs> he really had that in mind you know that that was that was the foundation of of, of a lot of the layout was you know okay this has to be something we can make work in the pdf and so i'm glad to hear that they were able to achieve that ambition that's a that's a, a really interesting kind of um philosophy especially with the way that a lot of tabletop gaming has been going lately is that you know pdfs are always included with like the kickstarters and stuff like that now and mm-hmm. formatting it that way like really shows a kind of a step forward in I guess the um, well. I mean, the advantage to analog. This is this is what I found. uh, You know, running running games out of books is that when I need to look something up, I almost always have a sense of oh, it's about two fifths of the way in, and then once I've cracked it open to there, I'll flip through until I see an illustration I recognize, and I'm like, this is why game books have illos, not to to show you you know, how cool the setting is. It's so you can find things mm-hmm. for one reason. Anyway, you know, I would, I would look through things. I'm like, Oh yeah, that was by that really ugly thing with the tentacles. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of, remi- kind of reminds me of the old school kind of like down home directions of, Oh, you drive by the drive by the church and hang a right at the, you know, maple tree or whatnot. Kind of, kind of approach there, but it's pretty cool. You have to, you have to stop at the, you know, stop by the index to to ask directions for the. Uh... <laughs> there was a guy who um, I don't know if you guys remember a uh, an old game called The End that was it was post apocalyptic role playing after the biblical apocalypse. Hmm. No, I haven't heard of that. And the guy who published it, Joe Donka, always talked about wanting to do a version of it where. Instead of page numbers, it actually did chapters and verses. So if oh, you wow. look something up, you know, so each paragraph would be numbered and you would have, you know, <laughs> different chapter headings and it'd be like, oh yeah, I look it up. This is chapter, you know, this is the combat chapter, paragraph seventeen. Oh god. That's yeah. Interesting. A biblical apocalypse set up like the Bible. Wow. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. So speaking of unknown armies, it seems like uh, you've got a New Kickstarter underway currently. Uh, yes, you- and it's going really well, so I'm very pleased with that. What I've got is a novel that, for a couple reasons, would have been a terrible, terrible thing to try and sell to any sort of agent or publisher. It's in the second person, which means that it is presented as if the events inside it are happening to you, the reader. Uh, which is, you know, it, it's a very non-traditional choice. It's pretty much choose your own adventure, some forms of pornography, and the book If on a Winter's Night a Traveler by Italo Calvino. Sold. What? <laughs> <laughs> I am sold. Have you anything, read If on a Winter's Night a Traveler? It's one of my yes. favorite books. Oh, 
I, I honestly prefer Invisible Cities, but if, On a Winter to Snyder Traveler is an amazing book. And I'm in this writer's group, and uh, you know, one of the women there who's I've always really liked her work, it, it's like uh, if Chuck Palahniuk had ovaries. Uh, she brought in her experimental second-person story, which was all about how the narrator was taking control of you, the reader, and it describes how, yeah, you are a woman. You are going to fall in love with me, the narrator. You're very attractive. Here's the way in which you are attractive. And I'm like, wow, she's really kind of got a nifty framework for using literature as a metaphor for a terrible, abusive relationship. And and I found that very interesting. So I, I'm like, oh, I... There's a lot of possibilities in second person that I think literature hasn't hasn't explored very much or very widely or very popularly. But I think that uh, all my experience in gaming certainly makes it more accessible to me because, you know, running a game is a lot like you, know, you, you are describing to people the experiences of the character within the fiction as if it's happening to them. Uh, you are setting things up from from that perspective from the i am showing this to you as it occurs perspective and i think that a lot of people you know the, of gaming may make that more uh, more interesting for a lot of readers in the sense that you know everyone plays first person shooters so why shouldn't you read a second person novel should they technically be called second person shooters who here has played the first Bioshock? I have. Would the twist in that be considered second person? I don't know. I don't know what the twist is. So so the twist in, in Bioshock, and this is a game that's like 15 years old now, I think. <laughs> Give it a spoiler alert, Yeah, so, so spoiler, um, you, you're playing as this character, and you have like this, this little radio, and somebody's been talking to you this whole time. It's like, hey, I think you should go do this so you can get to these places so you can escape from this underwater city that was made by you know, undersea John Galt. So you have, you have to escape this place and, you know, get out. So why don't you go do this? And he always starts his phrases. Would you kindly, would you kindly go and take care of this? Uh And then you get to, you finally meet undersea John Galt and you, you beat him to death with a, uh, a golf club as you do, (laughs) as you do. And then it turns out that you, you are a person who was sent away from undersea Galt's Gulch. And, you have come back as an adult. You've come back as a um, a brainwashed adult. Who your your activation phrase is? Would you kindly? Nice. So the entire time you're doing all these objectives, that you know you as the player would think, oh, these are just you know first person shooter like mission objectives. I gotta go do these. Your character is following this brainwashing program to go and kill this guy. What a great lampshade. It's 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 amazing, and then after the whole scene where you you beat the 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 villain to death, that kind of goes downhill because there's more after that. Mm-hmm. But up to that point, it's really good, and that twist is like mind blowing at the time. So, well, that that's a great twist. Something I've been thinking about recently is the idea that the killer app of the tabletop tabletop role playing game is wildness and. That that twist in Bioshock kind of throws it into relief because mm-hmm. what that does very, very cleverly is blows out the fictional space. It widens the fictional space around the constraints that are inherent in the game, right? When you're playing a video game, you can only go where the game is and you can only do what the game permits. You cannot, in the middle of Bioshock, say, screw this, I'm leaving the undersea city and I'm going to open a soap store. But in a lot of role-playing games, it is, it, it's unlikely, but it is possible, theoretically, <laughs> that your D&D party could say, you know what, I, I don't think I want to go slay the troll village. I think what I'm really into is, you know, I'm going to get in touch with my dwarven heritage, start a forge, maybe sell some stuff to all these miners and, and adventurers who are moving through here. And you could, if your GM doesn't freak out because you you want to play something that's obviously not D&D, it could take this weird, hard right-hand turn. So and I, I've been trying to write to embrace that, uh, you know, on a, on, a, on a less 
game wrecking scale, but to embrace the idea that yes, the fact that your players are going to throw weird things at you that you could not and did not expect. That's a feature, not a bug. I noticed that this would almost go against the intentions of objectives and unknown armies. Mm, I, I would say not because objectives are set by the players, right? The players sure. are the ones who decide, you know, we want to be, we want to be the bakery on the borderlands or we want to be the, uh, the cabal that undermines the very idea of a division between high and low art. We're declaring war on that. And you know, or, the GM then has to say, okay, um, I guess that's what the game's about. How, you know, what are, what are your mileposts? What are the major battles in the war against the highbrows? So, I mean, you can, you can run the game that's about anything. So it's, if you're going to run Unknown Armies, boy, you'd, you'd better be ready to respond to something that comes straight off the wall. But I think that's the appeal. Oh, it definitely is. Uh, my group has decided that they want to catch an angel, so... Awesome. I, yeah. I, I have goosebumps. Oh, it's great. So how are they going about that? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, one of them... Someone got possessed by a demon. They've come across a, a ritual to uh, create basically the statosphere inside of a computer program. And uh, I'm not quite sure where I'm going to go from there yet. Yeah. Well, I mean, first off, you have to determine what an angel is. And if they don't exist, are they going to have to create them? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I spent a long time thinking about that. And I came up with a pretty good idea. But I don't quite want to spoil it because Adam. No, absolutely yeah. not. <laughs> You didn't mention my cross effigy I did, Chris. Why, why didn't you? Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. <laughs> why don't you explain that? Okay. So I would also like to thank you for interviewing us again because you were our second, uh, our actual first interview on Role Point Exchange, and we were talking about Unknown Army. So this is, you know, very fitting to do a follow-up almost a year later. The character in the game who was possessed by a demon died. And for some reason, my character, which I'm playing the most underpowered, I think, UA character you possibly can, I'm somebody, I'm a war veteran that has, like, a sixth sense. And that's that's all I have. Like, I, I can reasonable. kind of figure out where to go. I can kind of figure out what's good or bad. Don't have anything clearer than that. So I felt like it was a sign, since we were going to try to catch an angel, that I needed to, like, like do kind of a, a Christian kind of ritual. So I took this poor or poor dead party member and tied him up. Happens to be a Buddhist monk, by the way. So desecrating his body. <laughs> <laughs> I made a cross out of fence posts and all I, I had to tie him to it was barbed wire. And I drug him down a mountain into a cave and walled it up oh, as, boy. as a symbol. So he, he came back, but you know, much like, Pet Cemetery. I guess the ground was a little bit sour because he he just hasn't came back right. He was <laughs> see whenever Chris and Adam talk about the the Unknown Armies campaign that Chris is running, I I keep hearing about the the toenail clippings. <laughs> oh right. Um. So why don't you why don't you explain that to Greg real quick? And you then don't we'll get... have to feel bad about wanting a little mani pedicure. You know, the, <laughs> there's this fragile masculinity idea that if you get a pedicure, then it means you're not a real man. But I think we can grow beyond that. What <laughs> <laughs> a pedicure! What happened at Chris? Oh, uh, so one of my one of the players was having trouble kind of getting the vibe of uh, unknown armies. So I told him for gutter magic. Find an old school occult ritual and replace about half of it with stuff you would find in an Arby's dumpster. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, he decides to go to an Arby uh, an Arby's dumpster as a matter of course, and uh, he and Adam's character yeah, they're like, "Oh, we need the we need the fingernails of a hanged man." That's clearly curly fries. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, what they did was um, he pulled off his belt and hung himself. Ooh. While uh, Adam's character clipped his fingernails. Yeah, we went a little carotene on that one, but he made it through it okay. <laughs> oh, oh. He managed to, to stop just in time so that it wasn't a a, a life-ending experience, but... 
this and I would this argue. This great. You're okay, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> Thank you for this treasure chest we can trove into. Often. <laughs> yeah, these, all these welcome. I, I, you know, this is this is making me feel better. Someone had I saw on you know the internet. I, I read the comments, and someone felt that UA three was not as much of a horror game as two. And I'm like, no, it gives more power to the players. You just haven't seen the horror yet, but trust me, it will emerge. <laughs> yeah, apparently you don't have the right kind of players just yet. I believe the game will make them into the right kind of players. <laughs> I I have always... Jo- Jonathan Tweet showed me this about myself the, when I first started playing uh, what would become Over the Edge. He's like, oh, would you like some more rope? Would you like some more rope? Here, you can have all the rope you want. And eventually, yeah, he gave me enough rope and I hanged my character. <laughs> That's how it works. Yeah. Digressing, I guess, a tad bit from the Kickstarter. I do notice that uh, you have a sample first 28 pages. A 28-page sample, yes. Another inspiration for the novel was somebody's tweet that a book is basically telepathy in the form of a bunch of thinly sliced pieces of wood that make you hallucinate vividly. And I'm like, oh, that's great. That That's kind of true. And so I started thinking about how, you know, what books really do to you. Books really do make measurable changes in the physiology of your brain. You know, you read a whole book, you can remember parts of it, and something's, it has altered you. And I wanted to take that remarkable fact, and which we all take for granted completely, and foreground that as an element of a novel. So that was, uh, you know, that was another, another component of the, and that, that, that was another ingredient in the recipe. And then there was also, as I was looking at, uh, the sort of the, the, the consensus among writers about how you have to promote your work and the position that the book has relative to the reader. I'm like, oh man, being a book would suck. You have no power. You are this completely subservient, uh, impotent thing in comparison to the reader. And yet at the same time, the reader is the one who gets modified by the contents of the book, which stays the same. So it's a little bit of a power dynamic at play there. And so that is the overarching weirdness that I, uh, I I wanted to get into with the story. So then it was just a story about, okay, well, I'm going to tell an unknown army story and it's going to be about how things change you. And so bringing up the house of renunciation seemed like a, a pretty obvious way to go. And so there's a, a fairly substantial renunciation plot in the book involving a room that makes that takes the person you love most in the world and makes you hate them an equal and opposite amount. So I thought that was a pretty horrifying idea and I, I wanted to see where that went. I definitely enjoyed the first words of chapter one, this book hates you. So it kind of seems to be a kind of a unique twist on all that. Well, yeah, I mean, but if you were a book, wouldn't you hate the reader? Yeah, I I find that very, very fair. Later on, about two-thirds through the book, there's a character who's undergone this this emotional inversion, right? So the person that she loved the most in the world, she now hates the most in the world. But... As you, the main character, are talking to her about this and you you realize, oh, God, she's been through this. She's been reversed. And she mentions, yeah, things were okay with my boyfriend, but then they just sort of it just sort of fell apart. And you have this realization that, wow, she never the the greatest love she had going on in her whole life was mild. And so, you know, the breakup didn't bother her that much because her mild affection had turned into this mild disinterest. I I enjoyed that bit, uh, which is 
part of the extremely lengthy, smutty chapter. <laughs> I uh, Again, this was inspired by my writer's group because I, I noticed that people would bring in pieces that you know, were of a very sexual nature, but they would kind of shy away from elements of it. And I was like, look, if you're going to have a scene where the main character has sex with this other main character for the first time, that's a really tremendous opportunity for characterization. You know, people are so vulnerable in that circumstance and their reactions reveal so much about their personality. You can't just gloss over it and have the train go into a tunnel like a, a movie from the 50s. You know, I, I'm like, we're, we're all adults here. Let's, let's get into what this is really like and not the conventions in the same way that this book is like, let's, let's back up a little bit and see what books really do to people and not just assume that, oh, they are, they are these amusements here for our momentary diversion and they will serve us unquestioningly. Very interesting way of looking at it. I can't take all the credit. Uh, like I said, the writer's group was very helpful. After mm-hmm. we have the main meeting on the college campus where we read each other's work and, you know, mark up the, the homonyms, misused homonyms and, and uh, you know, future tense and stuff, then we go to a, a pizza place and drink beer and, you know, really dig deep. So the beer helps a lot. <laughs> Um, now, now let me ask you this, Greg, because uh, uh-huh. unlike Chris and Adam, I am still relatively fresh to the whole world of, of Unknown Armies. Okay. Obviously, I've, I'm backing the book, and I've backed Unknown Armies 3, and actually got... All you need to know, buddy. That's all you need to know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, I mean, for for somebody who's fairly new to the whole the whole world of the... How does, how does you, the, the book, how does that... How does that work as like an, an introduction? I very that? consciously tried to make it as accessible as possible. I don't, I don't see the point in a game book, in a, a book that's related to a game's intellectual property that shuts off everyone who doesn't play that game. I think the setting of Unknown Armies is interesting and weird enough that even non-role players deserve to be exposed to it and can find something interesting in it, even if they don't want to play the game as the game. So I, I wanted to work on the book with that. I'm also trying to uh, uh, get a graphic novel going. Ooh. So wish me luck. I may have an artist <laughs> for that. It's called Rainchild. Uh, and that, but that would be a long, 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 long way down the road. I've got the script written for that. Greg, you just I, want all my money, don't you? I do. Well, no, do, I can't. I can't very well charge. You know, I can't produce enough to get as much money as you probably have if you like sold your car and mortgaged your home. I think my desires are actually pretty reasonable. Okay, um, I mean, you can have it. I, I'm happy. The setting of unknown armies. The premise of unknown armies is extremely humanocentric. The guys from Pseudopod described it as the democratic horror game. And it's a a democratic horror setting. The idea is that people come to embody social roles. And when enough people believe in a role, the person who best represents it stops being merely mortal. Their body falls away in light and they become an immortal principle of the universe and that there are 333 such archetypes. If we mere mortals act out one of these roles, knowingly or unknowingly, things tend to go our way. But if we resist them, then things can start going badly for us. As soon as 333 roles have ascended, the universe is destroyed. The 333 archetypes merge into a a sort of demiurge figure that creates the next universe based on the, the nature of the roles they inhabited. And so the optimistic view of the cosmos and unknown armies 
is that if we can just believe in goodness enough, if we can just create enough positive social roles, then this world, then people will find it easier to behave well in this world. And the next world will be even better because it will have these positive influences built in at the start. But at the same time, looking at the world the way it is implies some very dark things about humankind. You know, the way that we kowtow to charismatic leaders, that's there because someone thought that was a terrific idea. All of the power imbalances and injustices aren't just accidents inflicted on us by a cruel and unthinking nature. They were not bugs in the system. They were features that someone built in. And so the downside of having all this power is that uh, the downside of all this potential is that if we give in to our fears and hatred, the next world could be a hell on earth. So the uh, the tagline for Unknown Armies in its various incarnations has been, you did it. When we were first working on it, John Tynes came up with much of the idea as a reaction to the Lovecraftian helplessness horror, right? In, in Lovecraft, human beings are just grit in the gears of an uncaring cosmos. We do not matter at all. In Unknown Armies, we matter too much. Everything, every bad thing that happens is the fault of, is, is a self-inflicted wound. And nobody is coming to save us but us. So, I don't know. Did did any of you guys ever read uh, The Unbearable Lightness of Being by Milan Kundera? Can't say that I have. I have that on my list. When I was in college, I was dating this really attractive woman who was a huge Kundera fan. So I read a lot of Milan Kundera. And <laughs> the, the title of The Unbearable Lightness of Being refers to these two philosophical conflicts that are presented is, as being uh, – opposite ends of a continuum, lightness and weight. And some people believe in lightness. They believe that their actions don't really matter. And if you believe in lightness, it becomes very hard to be motivated to do anything because you don't believe you have any power. You believe that anything you try, you might succeed, but it won't be to your credit if you succeed. And if you fail, you could fail regardless of how hard you try because you don't really have the power. Whereas weight, on the other hand, is the belief that, no, everything that happens to me is my responsibility. If things go badly for me, it's because I did something wrong. And, you know, if you are not living your best life, the philosophy of weight makes you guilty of every bad thing that's happened to you. So the Lovecraftian universe is one of lightness, is the horror of lightness. It doesn't matter what I do because I'm insignificant. The horror of the Unknown Army setting is the horror of weight. Uh, it matters entirely what I choose. It's nobody's fault but mine. And if I'm not well equipped to uh, navigate my my life, that's too bad because no one's coming to to bail me out. We reflected this in the mechanics of the game by having uh, we we talked about objectives earlier. In a lot of games, uh, the traditional role playing game is very reactive, right? If you look at a great Dungeons and Dragons is an archetypal example. And it's reactive. There's this dungeon. You're going to go in there. There's probably a dragon. You're going to fight. You're going to get treasure. It's going to be awesome. And the advantage of that setup is that it's very clear to the GM and the players what's going on. But Unknown Armies says, okay, instead of presenting you a situation to react to, we are going to ask the players what what challenge they want their characters to face. You are going to have to generate the plot of the game yourselves instead of being handed one by the GM. Another game that I've done a lot of writing for is Delta Green. Are you guys have familiarity with that? 
very, very intimately. <laughs> yeah, I, I have been editing Control Group, the big, uh, sl- the big slab of uh, of adventures, and you know, Delta Green and Unknown Armies uh, again, both heavily John Tynes influenced. Or you know, John Tynes is is the progenitor, is a, a progenitor of both, uh, but it's they've they've grown in sort of opposite directions. Being Lovecraftian, Delta Green is also a very reactive game, uh, and that's its great strength is that you have to complete the mission, or you have to engage the mission at least, or you know the if you don't the the outcome is so unspeakable that it's an automatic loss. Uh, refusing to engage is the only thing that's going to be worse than, say, encountering Artifact Zero. Uh, or <laughs> what, what was the one in Mysteries of Central America where you go down in the cave full of bats? Uh, well, a sacrifice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, a sacrifice. <laughs> they're, they're clearly vampires. <laughs> they're clearly vampires. <laughs> <laughs> Look, man, it was it was an extremely. <laughs> I'm sorry. There, there's you, you roll you you went with that role very well. I that that was a that was a high moment in my uh, in my playing career. I have to admit, and that is you know that's probably a moment that contributed to my belief in wildness as an advantage because you could not program that twist into a computer game. The game I'm starting up now that I want to that I want to podcast if I can get the audio equipment to work right. At one point, I present it as all right. What these games are is a three way conversation between the players, the GM, and the dice, and that's where the wildness comes in. Oh wait, actually, this was in where Shane uh, Shane Ivy and Art Dream is. We're also kind of noodling around with uh, restarting Grim War. Did you guys ever buy that? Mm, no. Grim oh, well, cool, because we're doing a new version. Grim War is sort of my take on the 20th century with mutants and demon summoning if all the tropes from Marvel Comics were flipped on their head. Oh, yes, I remember that one. <laughs> yeah, you see, as soon as I say that, it probably needs a more clean cell line, but yeah, it's definitely the hardest pitch I've ever had for a wild talents game. Uh, but that's the one where I, w- as I was rewriting the, uh, the GM, here's how you make stories section. I was like, yeah, this is really a three way dialogue between the dice, the players and the GM. And I think that's a, a, a useful point of view in as much as it explains to the GM how they ought to respond to the unexpected and the idea of the wildness and the improvisational nature of it, I think adds a lot to, you know, the, it could, could help people loosen up uh, and that, Mm -hmm. that, you know, understand that this is, this is the good bit is when everything goes kablam. That is definitely the case. I, yeah, I think that the things that have been most cemented in our, my players' heads, the Unknown Armies game, is when they fail. <laughs> I find failure in general tends to be the thing people talk about in games. Yeah, um, well, it depends on the game, and it depends on how much the game leads you to expect that su- success is a given, right? Many of these games are heroic games where you are presented as this hyper-competent action movie badass. And, you know, that's great. You know, I love Feng Shui, uh, which is is sort of a, an archetype of the genre. Or mm-hmm. Delta Green, where the agents are super competent when it comes to dealing with anything on a sub-nightmare monstrosity, extraterrestrial Lovecraftian beast level. Right. They're just dealing with a kidnapping. They're badass. But uh, one of our, I, I recently ran um, Visid, uh, scenario oh, yeah. by, <laughs> by by Dennis Detwiller, and the it, we ran four sessions of it to get through the whole thing. And the second session, one of our players, who is also the one that hanged himself to cut 
his fingernails, I believe, uh-huh. uh, critically fumbled when when facing off against the horrifying flesh monster, and he just kind of fell face first into it, and that was it. That was his character. He was done, <laughs> and he has been upset about it for about two months now. <laughs> like every, we, like, we like to needle him about it a little bit, but. Yeah, every time we, we bring it up, and he just gets so mad. It's it's, <laughs> it's great. Yep, yep. Well, there it is. You you face off with old Slurpee. You gotta you gotta expect bad things to happen. Yeah, I, I uh, played through. I think the first two versions, uh, the first two parts of Visid, run by Detwiller himself, but I never got to you know, see the end of it. So mm. maybe at Gen Con this year. Where we should have the you know the Delta Green book. I'm really looking forward to a Gen Con where Unknown Armies and Delta Green both come out. Oh, that, that's that's going to be amazing. That should be pretty fun. I'm already trying to weasel my way out of work to go to Gen Con for that. <laughs> can, can you tell them that you have a uh, you know a highly time sensitive illness coming up? Then? <laughs> it flares up every August or so. Yeah. Well, I don't mean to give my secrets away, but last year's Gen Con, I was able to tell them that I was showing, I was, I'm a teacher. Like, uh-huh. I'm going to show up Wednesday for the professional development. I'm just going to hang around for Thursday and Friday, but you know, <laughs> I was able to sell that. So Gen Con has a, a instructor professional development day on Wednesday? Yeah. They, uh, they have it set up for businesses and then they have like library and media specialists kind of. Neat. Is is that uh, what you do? You're a, a teacher, a librarian style teacher, or are you a, an instructor or something else? I'm actually an instructor. I teach computer science, so I'm actually starting to dip my toes in the world of game design from a digital standpoint. But I mean, you see kind of a lot of parallels between between you know pen and paper and digital. So it's been it's yeah. enjoying. They're they're similar, but they operate on much different financial scales. Oh yeah, um, I mean yeah. De- the guy to talk to about getting into the the digital game realm is Dennis Detwiller, who has. You know, if you think his stories about the C- Cthulhu mythos are scary, <laughs> you haven't heard his stories about working in computer games. <laughs> uh, I saw a Facebook post today from him about that. Oh God! What did he say? I'm off Facebook. Uh, he he was talking about how people keep coming up and asking him about how to get digital games. He's like, "Why don't do it? Go into board games and tabletop gaming. It's so much easier. <laughs> it may not be as financially, you know, great, but you're you're not going to be shipped around to studios every three months." Yeah, I mean, it. In my experience, I've done very. I, I've worked on the the very periphery of that, and it's like, yeah. The money's good, but you earn it. Right. And the you know the the fiscal weight that's getting swung around means that you not have to have a lot of people involved, and there's a number of fail points. And when you have that much money on the table, everybody wants to be the boss. And so there's you know, there's a lot going on. It's it's got a lot of momentum and inertia. Which can be great if you're working for an established company that knows what it's doing and mm-hmm. but at the same by the same token, if they're an established company that knows what they're doing, they're gonna hire you and say, Okay, you're a cog. This is where you go and this is where you turn. And if you cog well, they will pay you well. And if you don't like being a cog, well, that's too bad. <laughs> yeah. I get a lot of the um kind of I like playing video games, like, well, Okay, that that's a good start. It's good to be a consumer of the product you're putting out, but <laughs> it, there's a little bit more than you know. Yeah, to me, it's like that's like saying I like eating French fries, so therefore it stands to reason that I would enjoy being made into French fries. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds about right. Thank you. That will now be my my mantra. If yeah, you, you can have that one for free. <laughs> Appreciate that. I was meaning to ask you, uh, going mm-hmm. back to you, I, I get the impression, and correct me if I'm wrong, I get the impression that you develop 
after or during the process of writing Unknown Armies? So it wasn't like that writing, uh, the experience of writing you informed you in Unknown Armies. Is that correct? It's kind of a no. The the, chrono- the chronology was I did all my Unknown Armies writing and developed developed the writing that the other writers did, and then there was a little break and as I was seeing the enthusiasm that was out there, you know how enthusiasm works. So that it bounces back and forth. And so seeing the enthusiasm of the other writers and the publisher and uh, the fans, I'm like, yeah, this is, this is working. This is, uh, this is vital. This is, is, has, has got liveliness and energy to it. And so I had the idea and I had the time to do it. So I started writing it. And then the book came back and I was, you know, redeveloping it. And so there was sort of this thing where the book would go out and then I'd work on the novel some more. Uh, so it went back and forth. I mean, Unknown Armies 3 was in development for a pretty, for a fairly long time. And, you know, that had me thinking Unknown Armies thoughts. Uh, and that's where I, you know, came up with the idea for it. And so it's it's much more uh, accurate to say that the novel is informed by the game than to say that the game is informed by the novel. Okay. But Unknown Armies 3 is such a uh, outgrowth of the first two editions that, you know, it, it wasn't hard to, uh, you know, there, there's not so much, there's not such a huge change in the setting that I couldn't have, have produced the novel. And I, I did want it to not feel super gamey, you know? There's people game related uh, tie in fiction has a bad reputation, but you know, I think it like anything, it can probably be done well uh, and it's probably easier to do it poorly. But I I think I did a good job with this one. I think I've got a good setting. Obviously it's a setting that I, that is very close to my, my heart and one I know really, really well. And I wanted to take some chances and try, uh, you know, try some weird experimental stuff. And Kickstarter has made that a lot more feasible because I'm aiming this at a relatively small audience that I think will love it a lot instead of having to sell it to a gigantic audience that would like it okay the way, uh, you know, a big publisher would need to. I think I'm, uh, I, I think it becomes feasible and possible to take some big risks like putting it in the second person. Exactly. Um, speaking of like some of your, your, your writing kickstarters, I noticed I'm looking at your um, kickstarting projects created page right now. You have quite a bit of a uh, fiction and, and things like that. Is there, is there anything from your previous previous experiences with writing and doing kickstarters and stuff like that, that you've kind of learned and have helped, helped with making you and the, the Kickstarter for it? Oh, yeah. The one directly before this, Thank You for Screaming, was in many ways a dry run for publishing you. It was, I set it up so that I could test out the print-on-demand sort of pipeline that Drive Through Fiction has. Mm-hmm. Uh, and once I, you know, worked out some kinks and figured out, oh, you know, there's, there's a few things I shouldn't do, but it pretty clear that this is how this could work. I'm like, yeah, I can do this. I can, I don't have to have myself as a central hinge point that gets all these books sent to me. And then I pack them up with my, my, you know, poor tender hands and haul everything to the post office. I can get it set up so that I download all the addresses from Kickstarter, upload them to drive through fiction and have them sent out from their plants in the United States and Europe, and it will be quicker and cheaper. So it's, it's definitely, you know, that's definitely one thing I learned. And the other thing I've learned from all the uh, Kickstarters, uh, when, when you put this up, you should have the, uh, my fiction library from my website in the show notes, because that's where a lot of the stuff that I, I kickstart out winds up is free fiction online. That's been paid for. But yeah, it's, uh, I've been doing it long enough that I think I have shown people I can be trusted to do what I say I will do with a Kickstarter. And uh, because of that trust, 
I feel like I can take big chances like I did with this novel because it's, it's something of a risk to write an entire novel on spec and then say, Oh, Hey, my audience will buy this. Right. But so far they haven't let me down. Awesome. I think so. Yeah, definitely. I know I backed, I definitely backed Thank You for Screaming, which I have on my bookshelf upstairs. And then um, uh, I backed Locked Up, and I have the uh, the patch that came along with it right in front of me, actually. So, All right, I've been talking about my writer's group. You want to hear a fun story about Locked Up and my writer's group? Well, yes, sure. I tell this to everyone as an example of why writer's groups are a great idea. So I had written this story, which is about... It's, it's in the form of mostly a monologue from this girl who's in an insane asylum talking to this other girl. And she's just this, this motor mouth chatterbox who completely, uh, rolls over the, the meek, her meek listener and, you know, tells her how it is and is telling her all this horrible stuff. And when I first wrote it, I brought it into my writer's group. And I was like, this feels undone to me, but I don't know what's missing. I know in my heart that this story could be better, but I don't know how to make it better. So can you guys fix that? And so I hand it out. And one of the women in the group is, you know, this grandmother who the work she brings in is mostly meditations about how blessed she has been in her life and, you know, these pleasant reminiscences of uh, things she did with her husband. And so she's, you know, this very sweet hearted woman. She is not a horror fiction uh, connoisseur, but she read this story and in one sentence figured out what was broken about it and how to fix it. And that one sentence was, I wish the other girl had gotten to talk just once. And if you've read the story, yeah. you know that the ending is when she gets to talk. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's affecting. And that was all her. So I'm like, there, there it is. You don't have, you don't have to be a horror fan to offer good editing advice to a horror story. I'm sure that there are all kinds of genres that I don't personally enjoy, but where I could probably offer some good insight uh, on them. So yeah, that's why I believe in writers groups is that this, this adorable grandmother fixed my horror story. <laughs> awesome. Thanks awesome. Esther. <laughs> if you're out there listening to this. Yeah. I mean, she clearly is. Why wouldn't she? Yeah. So about how large of a book is you going to be? I can answer that because I've got a printout of it right here. It <laughs> is 236 pages, including the questions for further discussion. The first of the questions for further discussion is just, oh, for fuck's sake, really? <laughs> <laughs> what is the, of course, it's an estimate and that's all that anyone can give. Like, what's your anticipation for? Uh, at least the digital release of you. Oh, um, let's see. I think I said it would be in May. So the Kickstarter goes until the end of February. Uh, then there will be, you know, there will be March. So I gave myself March to get all the data correlated and get stuff sent out. And then, yeah, till the end of May. I would like to think that I will get things out before that. But as I have earlier, you asked what I've learned from previous Kickstarters. And one thing I've learned from previous Kickstarters is that things can go wrong. So I gave myself some extra time because people seem to prefer it if you say, oh, it's going to be out in May, and then they get it a month early, that makes them happy. If you say it's going to be out in March and they get it a month late, that makes them mad. So there it is. Kickstarter is a, a fickle beast. It is. So I'm trying to pull the old Scotty from Star Trek. Oh, Captain, I, I kind of have it fixed in an hour. <laughs> <laughs> it's always a good idea to give yourself a little cushion. It's a good idea with Kickstarter to assume that things are going to take more time and cost more money than you you might initially assume. 
Okay. Does anybody else have uh, any you-related questions for Greg here so while we're... I'm just really excited for it, mainly. <laughs> okay. I, I love uh, Godwalker, so... Yeah, and, and I hope that people won't get the idea that this is some sort of abstract, ephemeral, artistic statement. I, I wanted to try something different, but at the same time, it it is always my goal to write a good, satisfying, interesting novel. You know, a lot of things happen in this book. There is lots of action and lots of characterization and, uh, you know, lots of uh, people dissing each other with uh, witty snark. So it's it's not going to be uh, I, I didn't want it to be difficult to read. Yeah, exactly. Well, the last time that we spoke with you. You mentioned that there was uh, one of your big influences on Red Mar- Well, not big influence, excuse me. Let me re- state that. You uh, recommended the novel Big Machine by Victor Oh, yeah, Lavelle. Victor Laval. And it was, it's really exciting to see that. Uh, and you mentioned to me, you know, then that this was as close to unknown armies as you're going to get. And now it's, you know, a year later and it, we're actually going to get the apparently the first, if I'm not mistaken, bit of unknown re- armies fiction. Uh, Godwalker was the first, okay, God but Walker. that was that was a long time ago. Um, and I, I think that I I think I'm probably a better writer now than I was then. I don't really want to reread it and see if I I wince or if I'm like, oh no, this holds up well. But yeah, this is the first unknown armies novel in a long time, and. Like I said, there there was a long patch there where I didn't write anything for Unknown Armies because I didn't have anything that felt really pregnant with promise. You know, something where I'm like, this is going to be so cool, I can't stand to not write it. I didn't want to just turn something out just to to keep the uh, to keep the intellectual property warm, right? I wanted something that was going to be great. And it turned out that what was most helpful for getting me back into the Unknown Army's uh, vibe was working with a bunch of new writers. Uh, I, I want to stress again how great the writing team was for UA3. And so... It was a lot of their insights and discussion with them and the stuff they came up with that interested that that got me excited about this enough to write a whole novel and, you know, the script for a graphic novel. So hopefully that will be coming along uh, sometime. Oh, God, God only knows when I have an artist looking at it now. So cross your fingers if she she seemed pretty excited. And I think she'd be a really great fit for uh, for the story. But it's, it's definitely exciting. Something I've learned from doing comics is that it's a lot easier to write a script than it is to draw the comic. We're, we're out of questions for you. The okay. Kickstarter is going on until February 28th uh, yep. at 8 p.m. Eastern is when it ends. As of recording this, we're about $6,000 into it of the $8,000 goal. So there's still plenty of time. Yeah. And you've got uh, a couple different levels of uh, backing. Yep. Yep. Uh, for the most part, it's uh, $7 if you want the ebook. What I think it's 15 plus shipping if you want the tangible book in the United States or uh, Europe. If you're buying it from outside the United States and Europe, God, that's cool. But shipping is a nightmare. And so if that's your situation, if you're in Australia or Asia or South America, or I suppose Antarctica, there is an option where you can pay $7 to get a code that will let you buy the book at cost. So then whatever the printing and shipping costs will be, you'll just have to pay the minimum there. And so if you want to get it shipped to you, like, overnighted, that would also be the option to, to go with instead of having it shipped, uh, you know, in at the slow, leisurely rate that we mere mortals use. All right. 
I've used uh, drive-through fiction printing for a couple of different projects that I've backed before, and they've always come out really, really nice. I believe my copy of Thank You for Screaming came from them, and yep. that's that's how I did it. Yeah, and it's a uh, it's a really good quality. So I mean, it's it's definitely not something to 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 balk at. Yeah, I've got uh, I, I I've gotten prints made already because you know I I had to test and make sure that uh, you know it turned out well and it turned out well so there you go awesome well Greg we definitely want to thank you for stopping by and, and talking with us this evening oh the pleasure was all mine thanks for having me on all right our theme music is Critical Hit by Ghost Mice and uh, you can reach us at uh, RPA Exchange on Twitter uh, roleplayingexchange.com or uh, the Roleplaying Exchange on Facebook. They're all very lonely. Please come talk to us. <laughs> and uh, for the role playing exchange, this is Chris Hammond, Noah Carden, Adam Thorsberg, and Greg Stolze. <laughs> Once again, we did not think this through. Good night, everybody. Good night. Don't ever give up. Not all fights are won by skill, some are won by luck. Don't ever give in. You've got to keep on trying till you lose or you win. Cross your fingers, roll the die. Wait with hope for the big 2-0. Cross your fingers, roll the die. Let it go, let it go, let it go. Let it roll, let it roll, let it roll. Let it roll, let it roll.